Hey everybody, this is episode 228 of the Running Rogue podcast. This is your host, Chris McClung, and I'm coming to you from Austin, Texas. And I have what I think will be a fun episode for you today. I'm going to be talking about what I would tell my younger running self. What I would tell my younger running self. I've actually been pursuing this sport for over 20 years, just over 20 years now, which I started when I was in college exclusively, at least focusing on the running aspect of things. And I've learned a few things through the years. Obviously, I've become a coach along the way, dedicated my career to the sport. And so I was thinking back, and this was prompted by a similar letter that I saw from Lauren Fleshman to her younger self, which is actually a dated letter, but it was retweeted on Twitter this week and I was reading it. And I think there's a lot of powerful things in it. So I was thinking, what if I did the same thing for myself? What would I tell the younger version of me as a runner? And so I've got eight things that I would tell him. And maybe the, some of these things will resonate with you. Some of these lessons will resonate with you. And maybe you want to go through the same process for yourself if you were to think back on your journey. So we'll get to that in just a second. A couple of quick notes by way of intro before we jump in. First of all, I've got to remind you about May 8th. For those of you that are in Texas, at least in Austin or Dallas, we're going to be kicking off our training on May 8th with an in-person COVID-friendly event at our location in central Austin. And we'll also be doing the same at our locations in Dallas area, including there off of Mockingbird, close to 75, just north of downtown Dallas. And then we've got another location up in Capel that will be kicking off that same weekend. Those two locations are where we have our weekend long runs, but we've also got other locations for actually in Dallas for our weekday workouts, including those two that I mentioned, as well as the Richardson run on as well as of course we meet at Allen High School up there. So if you're interested in training with us in Dallas, then that's an option as well. You can find out information about all this stuff, Austin or Dallas at roguerunning.com. And of course we also have our virtual programming, which will be opening up a little bit after that for some of our podcast based training groups, which I'll be talking more about as we get closer to that. So I just wanted to remind you, I think I only mentioned Austin last week, but we do have those kickoff events happening in Dallas and Coppell as well for those that are in the Metroplex. So that's one thing. Second thing I wanted to quickly talk about is just a running current event. We had this past weekend in Istanbul at the half marathon distance, a world record broken by Ruth Chepin Gedic. She is a 26-year-old Kenyan. She ran 10402 to break the current world record for women by 29 seconds. That also, incidentally, was a close to 90-second PR for Ruth herself. She led two other women that were also under 105. So it was the first time three women actually ran under 105 for the half marathon in in a single race, and that is a blazing low 450 per mile pace for those that wanted to know the math on that. And so this one is interesting for me. And this is where, you know, some people will be frustrated with me about talking about it this way. But to me, uh, I find my joy in the sport by having my eyes wide open about these sorts of things and not just getting blindly excited about it because fast times are being run, but you have to, I think, anytime a fast time is being run, look at it with a critical eye and assess whether or not you want to get excited or if you want to believe in that result. And so for me, and I'm going to give you my perspective on it, knowing full well that some of you won't want to look at it this way, and that's okay. Some will choose to look at it just purely on the surface and get excited about a world record being broken and not want to dig further. But for those that want more, and for me, this doesn't kill my love for the sport, but it actually makes me more engaged with it. For those that want more, then you have to look at a result like this and ask yourself, is it real? I think anytime a world record is broken in a world where doping is prevalent, you have to ask yourself, is it real? Is this something I can believe in? Is Ruth Chepengedich an athlete that I want to support as a fan that I want to invest my energy in? And I can say for me, 
She's not for a couple of reasons. One, because of her association with two agents. They're actually a father and son combination, Gabrielle Rosa and Frederico Rosa, that are Italian agents that operate in East Africa, mostly Kenya, that have been associated with close to 10 doping positives at a high level in the sport for mostly EPO, but a few of them for other substances as well. And so they are two agents that are known as gatekeepers for athletes that are cheating. And to me, it's actually quite crazy that World Athletics hasn't cracked down on those two because they've been associated with so many different doping positives. So Chepengedich is in the Rosa camp, which is a strike against her. Also, if you look at her progression in the sport, and while she's only 26 years old, her progression still raises eyebrows if you look at it. And, you know, I'm a firm believer that there are no miracles in running, but you have to look at the history and the progression and see if a progression actually makes sense in broader context. Now, without the Rosa Association, maybe this isn't relevant. But with the Rosa Association, you have to look at that history. And her debut in the distance for the half marathon was actually a 111 and a 114, her first two races at the distance in 2016. A year later, she doubled it, ran the marathon, and ran that in 222 for a marathon debut. Since then, she's run in the 217s for the marathon, and now she's run 104 for the half marathon in this 90-second PR. That progression going from 2016 to 2017 to suddenly making a 90-second jump in the half, to me, raises eyebrows that, along with the Rosa Association, makes this a performance that it's hard for me to get excited about. Now, you may get excited about it, and that's fine. But for me, it's something that's hard for me to get excited about, and the and it and it makes me question the result. It just does. Now, I'm not saying she's doping because we don't know, but I'm just saying as a fan, this is not a an athlete or a result that I'm going to choose to invest much in, spend much time and energy on. And some people will say, "Well, you're just a curmudgeon who you know is always bringing up the negative side, negative side of the sport." No, it's not actually true. I find plenty of athletes that I can invest in and can find inspiration in based on the history I see, the associations they have, how they talk about doping and so forth. And those athletes are often featured over on my Clean Sport Collective podcast with Kara Goucher. And that's where I choose to invest my time and energy. And anytime I see a result like this, it just raises eyebrows, makes me question, makes me dig into the data and look more at it to look at the associations of the athletes, to look at their history in order to decide whether or not me personally as a fan, I'm going to invest my time. And so that's how we look at it. Again, you can choose to look at it differently, but I just wanted to educate those that might be interested or curious as to how I review these things to, to let you know about those things. So that's, that's that. I hope you don't take that as negative because I do believe that there are plenty of performances to get excited about. And I totally understand and applaud those who get excited about this one. But for me, it's not one of those because of those two things I mentioned, among other things as well. So that's what I have by way of intro for those that are curious about my perspective on the world half marathon record there for the women. So With that as our intro, let's jump into this topic. And this one to me is interesting. Again, I came to this because I saw a letter that was actually written by Lauren Fleshman just under a year ago that was posted on MileSplit about what she would tell her younger running self. And she was an elite athlete, performed at a high level in high school and college, and then, of course, professionally, where she went on to compete at the world championship level in the 5K. So she's a much different caliber of athlete than I am. But it was interesting to me reading this letter of what she had to tell her younger self, and it made me think the same thing. And so I've got a quick snippet that I want to read from her letter, and I will 
publish the link to this also in the show notes so that you could so that you can see and read the full letter if you choose to. And then I'm going to comment a little bit on what I think about this general concept of writing letters like this, and then we'll get into what the the eight things I would tell my younger running self would be. But here's a quick excerpt from Lauren's letter to her younger self. She said, I need you to know, I promise you that the ultimate star you are chasing is further ahead than any shiny thing you see now. The way you get there is to protect your health and protect your love of the sport above all, even as you reach for the shiny goals right in front of you. You simply do not know and cannot predict your personal path, but you'll get there. It will look different and brighter and richer and more multifaceted the closer you get. I need you to know you have always been more than a runner, more than your times, more than your state championships, more than your school records, but you will get confused. You will forget Luckily, you will have teammates and family and friends who remind you. You will go on to do almost every single thing you could have dreamed of, not in the way you imagined, not on the timeline imagined. And when you retire from being a pro runner after 12 years, you will be surprised at what ends up being most valuable to you. Your medals will be in a box somewhere and you'll never look at them. Your proudest accomplishment will be a race in which you finish last because in that race, you were tested more than ever and you were brave. So that's the excerpt from Lauren's letter to herself, which is a broad reminder to all of us that we are so much more than our times, than our goals, than the race medals in our closet or on our wall, and that we're certainly much bigger than the PRs and or the the last result that we might have. So to me, that's a good perspective and a reminder that it's so much bigger and that oftentimes we lose focus on that in the midst of our journey. But the interesting thing to me as I transition, just want to talk a little bit about this concept of writing a letter to your younger self because it's interesting to me, this idea of writing a letter to your younger self because I'm torn on it. On one hand, I think, man, it would be great if I could go back and tell that 20-year-old me who started running all the mistakes I made so that he could avoid those mistakes and therefore somehow have a better journey to this point than I already have had. But the interesting part, the other side to that coin is that if I were to not make those same mistakes, if I knew everything I knew now, then then my journey wouldn't have been the same. I wouldn't have learned those lessons the way I did, which may have meant that they didn't have the same impact in the way they came. And so I think that's sort of an interesting thing to think about. While yes, I might tell my younger self these things, I am not necessarily sure if I would want him to know that or if I would want him to make those mistakes and learn those lessons on his own because I have no regrets about the journey that I've walked or run, and I certainly have no regrets about what I've been able to learn from the mistakes that I've made along the way. And so that's why, to me, this is a little bit of an interesting exercise. It also makes me think I have this interesting situation as a parent in that, and other parents I'm sure can relate to this, in that my middle child, my middle son, who's now 10, is most like me of the three of the kids. He looks like me, although he has blonde hair and I have brown hair, but he looks like me, has the same blue eyes and has a demeanor that is more like me. He's the quiet, shy introvert that I also recognize from my childhood. And so when I see him and when I see him operate and when I see the mistakes that he makes, I see often myself and it's a terrifying and scary thing to to parent yourself in a sense. And it's easier with my older son, who's actually more like my wife in terms of his personality and how, you know, how his demeanor is. And so it's easier for me to actually parent my older son for whatever reason, because of that, because he's different than I am. And, and I've learned to work with my wife and learn to compromise with my wife, but I've never really maybe learned that with myself directly. And so when I look at my middle child, who's more like me, it, it sometimes is paralyzing. And it makes me ask the question, 
you know, I know in many ways because of his demeanor and personality being like mine, I know some of the mistakes that he will make. I know some of the challenges and struggles he will have. But to what extent do I want to help him not make those same mistakes? Or do I want to let him make those same mistakes so that he can learn just like I did? And I have that ultimate question as a parent all the time because I can see both sides. You know, certainly there is value in protecting your child from mistakes, I think, at times. But also, often it's important to make those mistakes and to let your child experience those tough things or those struggles or those faults so that they also learn and grow like you had to. So it's it's interesting, this whole discussion. And so if I were to tell my younger self these eight, these things, there would be eight things that I've come up with here today, but I'm not sure if I would want him to know or if I would want him to simply make those mistakes on his own. But in many ways, I tell you these things so that you can gain perspective too on your own journey and also maybe short circuit some of the lessons that I've learned over the last 21 years, depending on where you might be in your running journey. So here we go. Number one of what I would tell my younger running self, I would tell my younger running self to start sooner, to try out for the team. I actually don't have many regrets in life, but this I would say is one of them is that when I was in eighth grade, My mother encouraged me because I was a soccer player and had some pretty good running ability because of that. She encouraged me to try out for the track team in eighth grade and I didn't do it. I didn't do it mainly because as a, I didn't know anybody on the track team and as a shy introverted kid, that was terrifying to me to walk into a space where I didn't know anybody. And so I didn't do it. I didn't take that step. And While I don't think I would have had necessarily an extraordinary middle school or high school track career, the thing that I regret about not stepping into that space was was losing the opportunity to experience the sport in that way, where racing is pure in a sense that you're racing people and not racing for times, which as an adult, largely my experience has been more about beating myself and competing with myself than it has been about competing with others. And so it would have been fun and nice to have that opportunity to experience that purity of competition as a middle schooler and high schooler that I didn't get to experience. So as I think about that lesson, I think there's broader application, obviously, which is that it's important to step out of your comfort zone at times and try those things that might seem scary on the surface. For me, I wish it was the track team in eighth grade. For you, it might be something different. It might be joining that running group that you've always seen out there running, but were afraid to step into because you didn't know anybody. It might mean reaching out to that coach and asking them for help with your own journey even though you might be intimidated to have that conversation. It might mean signing up for that race that terrifies you because you're, you're scared or it's well out, outside your comfort zone and just stepping into that space and occupying it and then letting come what may. I think that's an important part of running at times is taking those leaps of faith into the spaces that, that scare us, that challenge us, that we're not really sure what will happen when we get there. And that was me. You know, I didn't know enough about what I was stepping into at that time because I came from a soccer background primarily as my main sport. I had never actually done any school sports at all. And I didn't know anybody on the track team. I wasn't really a runner, even though I was running for soccer. And so there were all these question marks for me about that world, what it would look like, what it would be like, would I even be good enough? You know, would I enjoy it? I I didn't know anything. It was all a complete unknown to me. And therefore I walked away from it. I didn't do it. I was too scared. And that for that, I have regret. And so I would tell my younger self to try out for the team, go for it, see what happens. And it may or may not have led to a track career as a middle schooler or high schooler, but at least I would have known. 
and I would have had the opportunity to make that decision for myself. So I would encourage you early in your journey, wherever you may or wherever you may be, try out for the team, take that step into the space in this sport that scares you where there are unknowns, because I think you'll find on the other side that there's something powerful there for you. And if there's not, what do you have to lose? You move on to the next thing. So that would be number one. Go for that team in eighth grade. Actually, well before my running career would really ha- would really begin later. So that's number one. Number two, I would tell my younger self that someday you will enjoy running for running's sake. That you will enjoy running for running's sake. And so therefore, step into that opportunity sooner or embrace that opportunity sooner to just simply enjoy running for running's sake. When I started out in the sport, it was really about competition for me. I had played soccer at a high level for a long time and I enjoyed that competitive sports outlet and have really always enjoyed that. I'm still a competitive person in if you get me competing for something, regardless of whether it's a board game at home or a lawn game outside or a sport, whether I'm good at it or not, I've always been competitive or tried to be competitive. And so when I stepped into running, it was, it was for me initially a competitive outlet. It was a way for me to compete with myself for the most part and a way to continually challenge myself that that fed that need for competition. And initially, honestly, I didn't like the sport for just the sake of running. And I didn't think actually when I started that I could like it in that way. I thought that that just wasn't for me, that I didn't need that reason to do it, that the competitive element would always be enough. And while I'm not sure if the competitive element would have always been enough, I do know that early on when I was running, my career was very much start and stop. If I had a race to do or train for, I was all in. I was training hard. I was consistent. But when I didn't have a race to sign up for, for whatever reason, and a lot of time that happened over the summers because it gets too hot here for races, I would just simply not train. And so I would go through these periods where I would train for six months to train for a race. Then I would take three months off and then I would sign up for another race and train for another five or six months. Then I would take three months off. And I continued that cycle, honestly, for the first probably four or five years of my running journey because I didn't enjoy running for running's sake. It was only about the payoff, the outcome, the race that I'd signed up for. But eventually... And I'm not exactly sure, honestly, I can't put my finger on it, of when that changed or when that evolved, but eventually I began to enjoy running for running's sake at some point. And it wasn't a flip of the switch. It was more just something that grew on me over time that it became something that I couldn't live without, you know, that became like sleeping or eating or breathing for me or it's something I have to do every day or six times a week now for me to feel normal for the balance of everything else in my life to kind of fit together. It becomes part of that glue, just like eating, sleeping, breathing does. And at some point it became that for me. Again, I don't know where along the way, but I I do think I could have been more open to that idea sooner in that if he had told me that I would get to that place early on that I might have been seeking it more early on in my career, seeking those opportunities to just enjoy running for running's sake rather than just making it about the payoff at a race by simply doing things, exploring in the sport that might allow me space to fall in love with it in that way, such as doing more trail running early on, experiencing the sport in different ways, trying more routes, enjoying honestly training with groups more often early in my career, which I didn't really do. I was I was more of a solo runner early on and that served me, but it didn't allow me to just enjoy that communion that you might have with your running community and enjoy a run just simply because of the company that you keep. And so... I don't know who needs to hear this or if anybody needs to hear this, but for me, I wish I had known 
that I would eventually fall in love with running for running's sake. It might have caused me to seek that in different ways sooner and appreciate it more earlier in my career. So that's number two. Number three, we're going to talk a little bit about more of a training principle concept, which is that I wish I could tell myself when I was younger as a runner to slow down, to slow down. I made so many mistakes early on before I really understood how running training worked. I've made so many mistakes, not only in getting injuries, but also ultimately, and I think hitting a plateau early in my career because I simply wasn't balancing the stress and rest cycles well enough. I didn't understand how slow you could go or needed to go in order to recover properly so that you could then invest more in those hard and fast days. And you've heard me preach about this so many times on this podcast. So for those that have heard that, this one doesn't surprise you. But for those who might be new, I will remind you that you have to go slow most of the time. And slow is relative to you. It's all lesser degrees of fast, but it's relative to you. And you have to slow down on those easy days, on those recovery days. You should be going at least a minute per mile slower than marathon pace or 90 seconds per mile slower than half marathon pace on those easy days. Even slower than that, perhaps an even a minute slower than that on those recovery days after a hard workout or after a long, long run, that's how slow you should be going. Because if you do that, then that allows you to invest in the hard days in the way you should. For me, and this is one of those where it's kind of a double-edged sword, it would have allowed me to prevent injury early on. My first marathon I was training for was 2000 in 2000 Chicago marathon. And I ended up getting a stress fracture that, caused me to have to push that first debut marathon until 2001 and and part of the reason why I got that stress fracture because I was going too hard all the time if it didn't hurt I didn't think it was working and that just simply isn't how it works now ultimately that stress fracture forced me to read and to dig into how running training actually works and how coaching actually works in a way that would ultimately lead to this career and to really understanding it. So I wouldn't take that mistake away from my younger self. This would be one that I might just slide into an envelope and tell him to open after a couple of years so that he could know that when he did make that realization that it would still hold true 18 years later as a coach. And so number three on my list that I would tell my running younger running self is to slow down in training, take recovery seriously, and know that that would then unlock not only injury-free consistent training, but also performances that you never could have imagined. So that's number three. Before we get to number four, I've got a quick ad, mid-roll ad for you. I'm going to talk today about the same brand and company that I talked about in my last episode, Magic Spoon, is sponsoring us today. This is the cereal company that I mentioned last week. As I said, then I am a cereal guy. I will eat cereal every day for breakfast. I will sometimes have it for dinner. I love cereal casserole, mixing different types of cereal. But the problem, as you know, with cereal is that oftentimes it has a whole bunch of sugar, isn't unhealthy, and certainly isn't well balanced with the protein that you might need. So I'm excited to tell you about Magic Spoon, which has zero grams of sugar, 13 to 14 grams of protein, and only four net grams of carbs in each serving. And also only 140 calories a serving. It's keto-friendly, gluten-free, grain-free, soy-free, low-carb, and GMO-free And if you'd like to try it out, you can buy a variety pack that includes all four of their flavors, cocoa, fruity, frosted, and peanut butter. I like the fruity, which kind of tastes like Fruit Loops, and the peanut butter, which kind of tastes like a Reese's peanut butter cup, if that's your thing. And so if you'd like to try Magic Spoon, you can go to magicspoon.com forward slash running to get that variety pack. And if you use the code RUNNING, all caps, at checkout, you will save $5 off of your order. So go check it out for a more balanced cereal product. It's like cereal for adults. 
It's also backed with a 100% happiness guarantee. So if you don't like it for any reason, they will refund your money with no questions asked. So again, to check it out, go to magicspoon.com forward slash running and use the code running all caps for $5 off on your first order. So go check it out. All right. So let's get to number four on my list of things I would tell my younger running self. And honestly, this is probably one I have to continue to tell myself and certainly have to talk to my athletes about as a coach. But it's this idea that it's important to think long-term and not to be in a rush. Think long-term and not be in a rush. I remember when I was young in the sport, I wanted every goal to happen right away. I was one of those runners who early on latched onto the idea of qualifying for Boston being a thing I wanted to go after. And I needed it to happen right away. I was so eager, in fact, that I wanted it to happen so quickly that I signed up for my second marathon after running Chicago in October of 2001. I signed up for my second marathon in December of 2001, the Dallas Marathon, and 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 went for it. <laughs> I ran a certain time in Chicago, which was, I think, 321, if I'm remembering right, maybe 320. Wasn't quite a BQ at that time. The BQ level was 310. And I was so eager to go get that, that I signed up for another marathon two months later. That I would not recommend. Now, it worked in the short term for me. I ran a 308 two months later in Dallas to get that BQ, but I will tell you that was a mistake. Shouldn't have done it. It would ultimately lead to injury that would delay my ability to actually go to Boston in person. And so while that short-term decision worked out for me, it didn't pay off in the long term. And and what I would say to that new runner or that younger runner, or even shoot, a runner my age who's 41, you can you can have success in this sport for a very long time. You can have success for a very long time. We have athletes in our community across Rogue that are performing well in their late 50s and 60s, and some even still going after PRs themselves because they've thought about the sport in the long term. And so if you're in your 20s or in your 30s or even like me in your 40s and 50s, you've got so much more time to experience the sport. And if you think about it as a lifelong pursuit, it changes your perspective on perhaps some of the short-term decisions that allows you to be more patient, that allows you therefore to not be in a rush, make good decisions about your training that will improve your longevity, that will improve your overall consistency, that will also improve your ability to love and enjoy the sport if you're giving yourself that opportunity to think long term. So don't be in a rush. I think I talked about this in my Building Towards a Breakthrough podcast recently. You you don't need to shortcut. You don't need to to take steps that are going to compromise your long-term health and future just to get a short-term result and goal. These goals aren't going anywhere. Races like the Boston Marathon aren't going anywhere. Your PRs aren't going anywhere. You've got plenty of time to chase them. And so think long-term. Don't be in a rush. You've got decades to enjoy this sport. And if you think about it that way, and again, I don't, I'm not telling you to plan that way. I'm not telling you to plan for what you might be doing 20 years down the road. But, but have a long-term view and mindset whenever you're making short-term decisions so that you don't take shortcuts, so that you don't rush, so that you don't end up compromising your near-term health to try to squeeze in a short-term goal. Because if you approach it that way, if you approach it long-term, then you'll have longevity, you'll enjoy it more, you'll appreciate the journey along the way. And by the way, the goals will also come and you may reach a higher potential than you ever thought possible because you're taking the steps in the right order versus if you take shortcuts, sometimes that can limit that future potential because of injuries that might come with those decisions. So number four, think long-term. Don't 
be in a rush. Number five, this is something that I think I've come to appreciate more recently. It's embrace seasons of running. Embrace the seasons of running, which kind of goes well with this number four of taking a long-term view. But there are seasons of running just like there are seasons of life. I've developed an appreciation for this recently, particularly because we've been, as a part of my virtual podcast, The Renegades, we've been having our group members come on the podcast with us. We do a weekly podcast for that group that just that group has access to that includes our information about training for the week, but we've also been inviting members of the group to come on with us to talk about their running stories and journeys and then have an opportunity to ask questions of James and I, who are the coaches. And as a part of this, we've been talking to a whole bunch of folks and getting to hear their stories about how they started in running, how their running has evolved and how they've come to the place that they are now with us in the group. And it's been absolutely fascinating how many people have had long-term journeys in the sport And again, we're talking about all ages of folks, but long-term journeys where maybe they started in high school and ran cross-country or track, but then got away from it for a little bit and then investing in it and then started investing in it at a different time. They maybe got away from it a little bit or changed their priorities in the sport because of family, career, kids, job, whatever it may be, and then came back to it. and And so there's this ebb and flow, just like you have an ebb and flow in life where you know, you're prioritizing different things at different times. The same is true for running. And the beauty of it is, is that there's beauty, that is the fact that there is actually beauty in all of those seasons. There's beauty to that early season in running where you're new to it and learning to discover it for the first time and learn to appreciate it for the first time and maybe making those beginner mistakes for the first time, there's beauty in that early trajectory where everything seems to be clicking because you're so new. There's beauty in the hard times when you get hurt and when you're having to grind and learn and get stronger perhaps to work through those things so that you can be better on the other side. There's beauty to those times when you're really motivated and you've got a big goal that you're sharply focused on and nothing can take your attention away from that. And so you're letting other things in your life slide because that's the focus. There's also beauty in the opposite of that when running takes a backseat and you've got other priorities. And so it becomes that that glue in your life that just helps you manage stress and perhaps relax at the end of a tough day. And and again, it's lower priority in that time, but still it provides something for you that helps you keep going. There's beauty in the times where you have to step away from it because sometimes other things take priority for whatever reason. And it's like an old friend that's still there that you can call at any point and pick up where you left off and maybe go for a random run here and there to reconnect with that, but not have the time otherwise to invest in it. And then, again, all of those seasons kind of can come back to each other. I remember after we had our first kid, (laughs) my oldest now is 12, but when we had our first I didn't run for nine months after he was born. And as I more recently, or say, you know, a couple of years ago, if I were to reflect on that time, that season of my running, where I actually took probably the longest break I've taken since I started was because we had our first kid and I was figuring out how to be a parent, how life was going to look different. I was heavily invested as a young father in doing my part as I could to change diapers and do overnight feedings and all of that. And so Amy and I were figuring it out, figuring out what this new world looked like for us with a kid in it. And running didn't have a place initially in that while I was figuring those things out. And again, up until a couple of years ago, I probably would still have beaten myself up for that, thinking that it was somehow a failure of mine that I wasn't able to maintain consistent running during that time, even though I had a lot of life change going on. But now I recognize it as something different as again, that was a season in life where running took a backseat rightly so. And I'll never forget the moments that I came back to it. It was a Thanksgiving weekend run. I was staying at my parents' house 
there were enough adults around to help with the kid that I was able to step out for a solo run on Thanksgiving weekend about nine months, I guess close to 10 months after Finley was born. And I went for a five mile run around my parents' neighborhood in Tyler, Texas. And I remember stopping in the middle of the run because it was so hard. I just was so out of shape. It didn't feel good. Stopped and walked for a bit and then started running again, but committed in that moment to, to re-engage with it, that I was going to figure it out. And ultimately I would, because I knew I needed that in my life, but it was that reminder that weekend of the fact that I needed running as a part of making it all fit together and work. And so then I changed my season and started reinvesting it. And obviously by that point we had figured out the whole life with the kid thing more and it ultimately worked out to now, you know, we have, have that well integrated in both of our lives. Amy and I are running because it is an important part of being a good parent too, is pursuing our own goals and dreams. So now I look back on that season where I didn't run and I think, Running was exactly what I needed it to be at that time. It was the thing on the shelf that I was going to come back to because I had some other things to figure out. That was not a failure. And just like any other season isn't a failure, any of the other seasons I described. And so just, I encourage you, take a step back from your journey periodically and reflect on those seasons and appreciate them all for what they are because there's beauty and magic in all of those seasons, regardless of whether or not you're driving towards those big goals like you might be now. So that's number five. Number six, getting back to a more practical <laughs> recommendation here. We already talked about slowing down on this front but another more practical training related recommendation I would tell my younger self is to start and integrate strength training into my running sooner, sooner. I, and honestly, I still struggle with it. I still struggle with it. I do it, but almost begrudgingly and I don't enjoy it because I didn't embed it into my process early on. And it's interesting because I had a background in, in, more focused strength training that I would did to that I would do to supplement the soccer training I was doing. But I got away from that when I was running and never really integrated strength training into my routine as a runner. And so now it's really hard. It's really hard. It's always something I I kind of tack on that I don't enjoy that is not well embedded in my routine and it is certainly not something that comes naturally to me. It's something I have to work at all the time. And so I would tell that younger version of myself that, you know, to keep up the strength training program, to develop a routine early on, to embed that in the process so that it became one with the running training, that the running training didn't become so dominant. So that's number six. And we all have that opportunity probably at any point to make that a bigger part of what we do. And I know I talked about it in my last episode about priming for the fall training season to come, to come, but maybe this is your opportunity to remind yourself and to embed strength training into your overall running training program now so that it becomes a given instead of a constant battle and a constant add on like it has been for me for a very long time. So I would tell my younger running self to embed that strength work sooner. Number seven. Number seven. And this one is one that I think would be a more subtle message that I would send to my younger self that isn't necessarily something that I think was a big struggle or top of mind for him, but that would shape some of his decisions and would help him avoid perhaps some of his mistakes. But number seven is... Being a runner doesn't have a look. Being a runner doesn't have a look. Runners come in all shapes and sizes. And that's something as a coach that I really, really try to emphasize. I think everybody thinks that they don't belong with runners because they don't have a certain look. And what I would say is if you have a body, you're an athlete. And if 
you're moving forward in space, one foot in front of the other, then you're a runner. And it's that simple. There is no look. And so at times for me, I have made some decisions with how I managed my body to try to achieve a certain look, to look more like a quote-unquote runner than what would have been healthy and strong for me. And that has caused me to make shortcuts at times that has led to injury. And doing things as a part of that that didn't fit what worked for me or that what would make me stronger for my body. And, you know, I'm somebody who I guess you would call it, call it a mesomorph. <laughs> you know, I, I think there's endomorph, ectomorph, mesomorph. I, I think that's the right term. But I'm in the middle. My body could kind of go either way. I can bulk up. I can put on muscle. I can also lose muscle and and focus more on on being that leaner trim down body shape and and so my body can kind of go either way but it's not naturally super lean that typical prototype runner that you might think about and so again it's caused me to take some shortcuts in life and in running that haven't been a healthy and productive and so I would tell that younger version of me that being runner doesn't have a look. Don't worry about what you look like compared to other fast runners. Just be you. Focus on what's healthy and productive for you. And that will serve you well towards your goals regardless. And I think the same is true for all of us. Running doesn't have a look. You don't have to be a certain shape in order to be a runner or to have success as a runner or to train hard like a runner or to have big goals as a runner. All of those things you have access to regardless of your starting point, regardless of what shape you might have as a human. And there's beauty in it regardless too. And so embrace it, own it, and work with it. Work with you. Work with your body in a way that's most healthy and productive and that will lead to smashing goals, I promise. So that's number seven. Number eight, the last one I have here, and maybe this should have been one of the first, but the last one I have here is simply to enjoy the firsts more. Enjoy the firsts more. Savor them. I have a tendency as a human, not just as a runner, to always be thinking about the next thing, to always have an eye on the future regardless of what I've just accomplished. You know, I was the one who finished the Chicago Marathon in 2001, my first marathon, who was within a few days signing up for number two and not really enjoying or relishing that moment the way I should. I'm the one who did not enjoy my first Boston Marathon because I was too focused on how I might perform there. And I missed the experience of it as a result. And I'm the one that throughout any time I've, or any time I've smashed a goal, who is the one who's constantly looking ahead to the next goal rather than just enjoying the moment, relishing in it, giving myself permission to be present in it instead of thinking ahead to hit the pause button and to actually let it sink in. And so if I could go back and talk to my younger self, I think this one is a no-brainer. There's no regrets to telling him this. It would be to enjoy your first. Let it sink in. Enjoy that first marathon. Enjoy that first Boston Marathon experience. Enjoy breaking 130 in the half marathon for the first time. Enjoy breaking 120 in the half marathon for the first time. Enjoy your first trail experience. Enjoy, enjoy, enjoy. Relish in those moments, those firsts, and don't get too greedy with them. I talk to runners all the time that are doing first marathons or perhaps training for their first Boston or maybe going to do Boston for the first time as just some examples. But I talk to them all the time about those experiences and inevitably people want to attach other goals to them 
like running a certain time or, you know, hitting certain splits versus simply enjoying that process. And that's not to say you don't have a plan in your first marathon or you don't have a plan when you run your first Boston. You got to have a plan always to, I think, enjoy a race in the way you should. But that plan should be focused first on enjoying the experience, enjoying the process so that you can really learn and relish in it, learn from it and relish in it so that then you can take that experience and all of its richness and all of the lessons that come with it and then carry that to the next thing that you can dig into and relish. And then when you have those moments, when you do succeed, when you get to that mountaintop you've been climbing for, chill out there for a moment, give yourself permission to enjoy it, celebrate it with yourself, with others, before you move on to the next. That's, to me, what the journey is all about, is relishing in those highs, grinding through the lows, because it's all a beautiful journey that is in and of itself the point and not just the stops along the way. And so that last thing I would tell my younger self as a runner is enjoy the first. (laughs) Enjoy the first. All right. As I wrap this episode, I wanted to wrap with the quote again from Lauren Fleshman from her letter. I need you to know, I promise you that the ultimate star you're chasing is further ahead than anything shiny you see now. The way you get there is to protect your health and protect your love of the sport above all, even as you reach for the shiny goals right in front of you. You simply do not know and cannot predict your personal path, but you'll get there. It will look different and and brighter and richer and more multifaceted the closer you get. I believe all of that is true. And I believe that 20 years into my running journey, I'm still experiencing the bright and shiny, the beautiful things. And sure, they look different now than they did 15 years ago. And they'll look different in 15 years than they do now. But I still have so much to look forward to in the sport. And so I'm going to enjoy it. And so anyway, those are my eight lessons and a little bit from Lauren Fleshman there. I hope you can take some of those integrated into your own journey and maybe also reflect on what you might tell your younger self. And if you have any insights, I would love to hear them. You can share them at chris at roguerunning.com. So with that, I'll wrap this one. I'll remind you to check it out, Magic Spoon. You can go to magicspoon.com forward slash running. Use the code running all caps for $5 off to try their amazing cereal. And of course, you can also check us out at roguerunning.com and follow us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook at Rogue Running. Until next time, we'll talk to you soon.